As a believer, it's more important to do more than just talk the talk, but to walk the walk in every area of life, especially in living out your faith. Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah continues his journey through Nehemiah to show how Israel learns the importance of practicing what they preach. From 10 Steps to Spiritual Renewal, here's David to share his message, Becoming Accountable for Conduct. Thank you very much for joining us. This is Turning Point. I'm David Jeremiah. We are studying um, 10 Steps to Spiritual Renewal as we begin the new year together. All of this um, material is from the last half of the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, when Nehemiah and Ezra reconstitute the spiritual code of the Israeli people as they've come back to their homeland. They've rebuilt the walls of the city, but in the process have allowed the integrity of their own walk with God to suffer. So um, Nehemiah and Ezra, especially Nehemiah, is taking charge of the renewal project. And today we're going to talk about becoming accountable for conduct. In other words, this whole business of walking with the Lord is not some general ideology. It's a specific walk. We'll talk about some of that in today's lesson, Becoming Accountable for Conduct. During this month, as we teach spiritual renewal, we're giving you a tool to help you in your own spiritual walk. It's the prayer code. 40 scripture prayers every believer should pray in the code series from O.S. Hawkins. If you have any of these books, you know how valuable they are, how very carefully and practically they're put together. And uh, they're not long. They're not uh, overwhelming. They're just very poignant and very much to the point of every chapter. This 210-page gift book is our way of saying thank you to you during the month of January for your gift to Turning Point. Your gift means everything to us. It's how we stay going. This is how we keep moving. It's how we are able to sustain all of these radio stations that carry this teaching program every day. So don't discount your importance. You really are important, and we trust that you will take advantage of this opportunity both to uh, enact your stewardship uh, life by giving us a gift to help us, but also Give us the opportunity to put this great book in your hands, make it a part of your library, hopefully a part of your life. Send your gift today and be sure and ask for your copy of The Prayer Code. So uh, today we're going to pick up where we left off yesterday as we talk about uh, Nehemiah chapter 9 and go beyond that. But we're going to specifically talk about several important things that have to do with accountability. Let's begin. Advertisers ask important questions when they're producing a product for marketing. Perhaps one of the most important questions is, what does my product have that my competitor's product does not have? What is it that I have that will give me a sales advantage over my competitor? In the field of marketing, that question is defined as the theory of differential advantage. Marketing managers have long understood and agreed that the maintenance of a strong differential advantage is the most effective means of promoting a product. The success or the failure of a particular product in the marketplace is often the result of their adherence to that principle. And the lesson in marketing about differential advantage 
is a very important illustration of one of the principles God teaches us in his word. You probably have heard that the Jews were a peculiar people. That doesn't mean that they were odd. It means that they were different. The Jews were God's marketing principle of differential advantage. They were God's chosen people. And they had and still have a covenant with God. In the Old Testament times, when they did what God told them to do, when they followed his plan, they were successful. If you read the Old Testament, you will discover that the Jews were successful in war. They were successful in commerce. They were successful as families and as a nation. God had laid down the standards, if you will, the differential advantage that he wanted them to know. The standards made them different from everybody else. They were different from all the nations around them. They were even considered unpopular and a little bit strange. But as long as the Jews looked to God as their source of strength and they followed his leadership, they maintained their differential advantage and they were number one in the world in terms of influence for the Lord. If you followed what has happened in the book of Nehemiah, you know that even though the Jewish people, many of them have come back and under Nehemiah's leadership, they have rebuilt the walls of the city, they still have not recovered their differential advantage. They're still like all the other nations. Oh yes, they've built the walls back, they're about ready to build their temple again, but they have not recovered the uniqueness that is theirs because of who they are in God. And so the second half of the book of Nehemiah is all about recovering the differential advantage that God gave them in the first place. Beginning at the eighth chapter, we've learned that there were ten steps to renewal. We could say ten steps to recovering their differential advantage. Getting back to the book, getting serious about obedience, getting concerned about sin, getting caught up in worship. And then in these few verses that are not just lists of people here in the tenth chapter of Nehemiah, we have the fifth thing that they do to recover their differential advantage, and that is they become accountable for their conduct. Actually, the tenth chapter begins in the last verse of chapter 9. For in the last verse of chapter 9, we are told that the Jews decided, because all of this, we will make a sure covenant and we will write it, and our leaders and our Levites and our priests will seal it. They got serious about their conduct, and they decided to become accountable for it, and literally to put down on paper what they were committing themselves to do. And it wasn't anything new. It was just going back to the old differential advantage that God had built in in the first place. They'd gotten away from it. They'd started to be like all of the other nations, and they had begun to violate the uniqueness that God had given them. And now they're saying, we want to come back and be again God's unique, chosen, special people. And so they decided that they would make a covenant and that they would sign it, each one of them, and they would commit themselves to certain kinds of conduct. Now before we proceed to the promises that they make and the things they write down that they're going to do, it's important for us to take a brief look at the people who sign the covenant. If you look at Nehemiah 10, you will discover a list of 84 names, and no, I'm not going to read them. Nehemiah's name is first 
And following Nehemiah, you will find the names of 22 priests in verses 1 through 8, 17 Levites in verses 9 through 18, and 44 others who were called leaders or heads of homes in verses 10 through 27. More important than the names, however, is what verse 28 says was true of every name that appeared on the document. Look down in your Bibles at verse 28 in the 10th chapter. And notice what it says. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethanim, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding. Note two things about this list of people that is signed at the bottom of this covenant. Two things that are very important. First of all, we learn that they were the people who had separated themselves from all the heathen and all of the heathen lifestyle. They'd made a conscious decision. We're not going to go on being like the world. We're going to walk away from the world and be different. And notice, secondly, they were all the people who understood what they were doing. This was no mass hysteria. This wasn't an emotional meeting where everybody came up and flowed in with all of the decisions. But the scripture says each person who signed this covenant understood what they were signing. That means that there weren't a lot of little children's names on the covenant. These were for people who were above the age of accountability, who understood what they were doing. And knowing what they were doing, they signed their names. You should pay very close attention to a portion of verse 28, which says that when they came to sign the covenant, their wives, their sons, and their daughters were included. It was families that came together, and it was a oneness of family members under the leadership of the priest within their family, who was the priest, the husband. And they came together as one to become a part of this new commitment to recover their differential advantage for God. Now, the signees of the covenant then were Nehemiah, followed by the Levites, followed by their brethren, and the chief of the people, and finally by the rest of the people. And that's pretty much the introductory information. I'd just like to point out the three things that they agreed to do. It's not difficult to find it here. And there are not many things on this covenant, just two or three, but boy, what a difference they made. First of all, they vowed to separate themselves from the world. I want you to read with me, beginning at verses 28, and let's just read down through the end of the 30th verse. We've read verse 28. Let's jump on in verse 29. They joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord their God and his ordinances and his statutes, that we would not give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. They said, we are not going to do this anymore. We've been doing this for a long time. We've been intermarrying with the people around us, and we are making a covenant that we will not do that again. We're putting our name down here. We're going to sign it. We want everybody to know we are making a decision to separate ourselves from the world. Their vow under the covenant implied that they would not intermarry with the heathen. 
And of course, this was very necessary to preserve the purity and keep them from idolatry and immorality. If you go back and study the Old Testament, you will discover that the worst thing about intermarrying in the Old Testament scriptures was not simply that they broke God's admonition not to do it, but through the intermarrying with the foreign people, they got into idolatry. They began to worship false gods, and God knew that. He said, don't you go and marry somebody from a heathen culture, or the next thing you know, you'll be bowing down before that heathen god. You'll be an idolater. And almost without exception, every time you see this standard is broken down and they begin to intermarry, they begin to worship false gods. Now, even today, we learn the danger of that, don't we? Very difficult for a person who loves the Lord to marry somebody who is involved in a cult or does not love God and maintain the direction of their faith and the deepness of their commitment to God. That's why we believe the New Testament is an echo of this Old Testament principle. The New Testament says, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. It says, come out from among them and be separate and touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you and will be a father unto you and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord God Almighty. I believe that for Christians today, we ought to make a covenant that we will not marry those who are not believers. We will not enter into a marital relationship with those who don't know our Lord. I've told our young people, our children, that the best way to do that, the best way to carry that out is never to date someone who is not a Christian. You say, well, you know, that sure does limit your options, and maybe your options need to be limited. Let me just remind you, and I know this is old wives' tales, but it's true, that every marriage began somewhere with a first date. So if you don't ever date someone who's not a Christian, you'll never end up marrying somebody who's not a Christian. Does that make good sense? The people of God under the leadership of Nehemiah said, we know that it's wrong what we've been doing, marrying those who don't know our God. We commit ourselves not to do it. So their first vow was a vow to separate themselves from the world. And then secondly, they covenanted together and wrote their names at the bottom of it. They vowed to be subject to the word of God. It says that they took an oath to walk in God's law and then it says, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his ordinance and his statutes. Now, the language here is very important. They didn't just say, we're going to try to find out what God's word says. We're not going to just study the word of God so we can become smarter about it. That's where a lot of folks are today. Well, we love to go to Bible studies because I've learned so much about the word of God. And as important as that is, folks, that's not really the purpose of it. The purpose is not just to read it, not just to study it. The purpose is to understand it so that you can do it. And if you don't come to the Word of God that way, you will never be a good Bible student. The best and the most wonderful method of Bible study I have ever read in my life is found in one verse in the Old Testament, in the book of Joshua. I believe it's back in the first chapter, and it simply says, I will observe to do. I will observe to do over and over again the very same principle to observe to do you know what opens the word of god to you and really makes it come alive when you study it to find out what to do not to find out what you don't know but to find out what to do to get your marching orders for the day to open this book every morning and say lord what wilt thou have me to do 
And whenever God tells you to do something in here, you just do it. And I believe that when that happens, when you study God's word that way, and you follow the instruction that you have, as soon as you step on the ground of today's obedience, God gives you the opportunity to learn something else you didn't already know. And you just keep going from knowledge to obedience, from knowledge to obedience, as you grow in the Lord. And that's why a lot of folks who've never had a seminary education, never had the opportunity to go someplace and formally study the Bible, run way past the intellectual students of God's Word because they are just naive enough to believe that this book is not a textbook to study, but it's a rule book to follow. And they go forward in their faith. So these people said, we are going to observe this book and we're going to do it and we're going to walk in God's law. And then the third thing they decided to do was they vowed to set apart the Sabbath. And I know this is an Old Testament passage of Scripture. It doesn't necessarily apply to us today because we don't observe the Sabbath. You know that. The Sunday is not the Sabbath. I hear people come and say, well, this has been a wonderful Sabbath. They're just one day too late. Sabbath is Saturday, not Sunday. Sabbath means seven. We don't observe worship on the Sabbath. We observe worship on the Sunday, and that all changed when Christ came out of the grave. Did you know that? When Jesus was resurrected, the day of worship gradually shifted from Saturday to Sunday so that now everybody worships the Lord on Sunday in celebration of the Lord's resurrection, the Lord's day. And we don't have all of the restrictive laws of the Sabbath that they had back then. And I want to say something about that in a few moments, but I want you to note what it says in verse 31. It says that if the peoples of the land bring wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and that we would forego the seventh year's produce and the exaction of every debt. Now, what was happening to the Jewish people who lived in Jerusalem now that the walls were built is that all the nations from around were bringing all their wares and kind of setting up Kobe swap meet outside the walls. You understand what I mean? And they're bringing all their wares. And, of course, Sunday's a great day to do that because you're not working. A lot of these people, they knew they could just walk outside the walls and they'd sell all this stuff. And that violated the Sabbath laws, and the people knew it, and they said, we've committed ourselves, we're not going to do that anymore. And so a lot of folks have taken all the Sabbath laws, and they've brought them over, and they've just put them right down on the Lord's Day, and they've said, you have to function on Sunday exactly as the Old Testament people functioned on Saturday. And I don't believe that's true. I don't think we're under that. You know, the only law of the Ten Commandments that is not repeated in the New Testament, you know what law that is? It's the one we're talking about right now. There's no repetition of the Sabbath law in the New Testament. Now, you say, well, Pastor Jeremiah, I hope you were going to say something stronger about the observance of the Lord's Day than what you just said. I like to say it this way. The Old Testament people were taught to observe the Sabbath to keep it holy, H-O-L-Y. And I think God wants us to observe the Lord's Day to keep it holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. He wants us to keep the whole day for the Lord. And while we aren't under the Sabbath laws, it seems to me that we've gone clear to the other extreme to the point where we're embarrassed if we're asked to do anything other than show up at one service on the Lord's Day. And it seems to me that what the Lord's Day is all about is giving the day to the Lord. Let the Lord have the day. That doesn't mean you have to crawl in your shell in the afternoon and not breathe. 
I don't feel real good about a lot of boisterous stuff that attracts a lot of attention to what you're doing, but I think Sunday can be a time of great joy and relaxation and fellowship. You can have fun on the Lord's Day, but you know something? You ought to give the day to the Lord. I was with that group of pastors, and one of them said, you know, it's really kind of ridiculous when you stop and think that we keep trying to perpetuate something that 70% of our people say they don't want, and he was talking about Sunday night. And so they said, we're phasing it out. We're going to home Bible studies, and you just give us a year so we won't have any Sunday night service. And I wanted to say, well, that's all right. They'll come over to our place. Because I know a lot of folks that still think Sunday night's okay. You know, Sunday ought to be a time that we can serve God. I'm always tired at the end of the Lord's Day, but it's a good tired. It's the greatest tired I know because you just spent yourself doing the Lord's work. And so these people, they made a covenant that they were going to keep the Sabbath. And I'm not saying we should go back and recover all the Sabbath laws, but I think maybe we need to take just a little bit of check as to what we do with the Lord's Day. And whatever else we do, we must never use the Lord's Day as an excuse for not doing God's work. A lot of folks take Sunday as an excuse to get away from the things of God, which is clearly the opposite of that for which it was intended. It's meant to be a day that we can devote to the worship of the Lord and the fellowship of God's people. You go to another country, my friend, and find out the appreciation they have for the Lord's Day, you'll discover we've gotten calloused about it. They'd meet all day long if you'd let them. And they don't get tired of it. They just love being with God's people. Well, so these folks, they made this covenant and they signed their names to it. And there's one other thing that we'll get to at another time. They also made a covenant that they were going to support the Lord's work financially. They, if you want to take a quick look at it, verse 32 says, they made ordinances for ourselves to extract from ourselves yearly a third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. They voluntarily signed a covenant that they would have pay deductions taken out of their check and sent to the church. Do I hear an amen? No, I don't hear any amens. I mean, this is so important, I'm going to devote a whole sermon to this one. Because they were committed to the support of God's people and of God's house. Now, what this is more than anything else, men and women, is just a covenant of God's people to protect the differential advantage. I want to end where I started. What kind of a differential advantage do we have as believers? Do people see in us anything that's different? We keep trying to be so much like the world, we're losing our opportunity. If you are so much like the world that they can't tell who you are, you've lost your opportunity to say anything to the world. We keep flowing in with all of the new things and we're losing our differential advantage for the cause of Christ. Maybe we need to sign a covenant too. And we're going to get back to being God's people. Isn't that a hard continuum sometimes to find our place there that we don't get all caught up in the peripheral things, but yet at the same time we maintain our differential advantage? God has called us to be in the world, but not of it. To stay in touch with those around us, but never to get caught up in the philosophy. We need to sign some covenants and protect our differential advantage. Well, there's examples of the need for that almost every day in our churches, in our schools, in our families, the differential advantage of being a Christian. 
let's not try to get so much like the world that nobody can tell the difference between us and them. Doesn't mean we have to be weird and crazy. It just means we have to maintain what we believe and not be colored by what happens around us. Tomorrow and Friday, we're going to go to the 10th chapter of Nehemiah, and there we're going to talk about another part of the renewal process, and that is making sure you're ready in the whole area of the stewardship of your life. Uh, We've called this taking a pledge to give. Just as today, back in those days, there was a plan of economy for the people of God. They had to buy into that. They had to make sure they understood it and participated in it, just as we do today. Don't forget, friends, um, we want to give you this book, The Prayer Code, and we'll do that when you send a gift to help us. This is kind of a thing we do every month. We provide this resource to enrich your life, and it's our way of saying thank you for your investing in the ongoing ministry of Turning Point. Your gifts are important. We're very grateful for them. We want to say thank you with this beautiful book by O.S. Hawkins called The Prayer Code. Ask for it when you send your gift today. For more information on Dr. Jeremiah's series, 10 Steps to Spiritual Renewal, please visit our website where you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected, our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of O.S. Hawkins' latest book, The Prayer Code, 40 Scripture Prayers Every Believer Should Pray. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James versions, available in several durable and stylish cover options. Get all the details when you visit our website, davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue 10 Steps to Spiritual Renewal here on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. Turning Point's new 365-day devotional, Every Day with Jesus, is available now. Filled with inspirational readings from Dr. David Jeremiah and paired with Scripture, it will encourage you each day in your walk with God. This popular resource is yours with a gift of any amount in support of this program. And when you give a generous gift of $120 or more, you'll receive four copies so you can share them with others. Learn more at davidjeremiah.ca. That's davidjeremiah.ca. In all we do each day, Dr. David Jeremiah and Turning Point work to make a global impact for the kingdom of God. But we can't do it alone. That's where Bible Strong Partners come in. These loyal monthly supporters form the foundation of Turning Point, allowing Dr. Jeremiah to teach the whole counsel of God. Partnering with Turning Point enables you to share in the eternal impact of this ministry, leading people to Christ through our media and printed resources, multiplying Bible teaching broadcasts, presenting the gospel around the globe, and strengthening the saints. In appreciation for your partnership, Turning Point wants to provide you with exclusive monthly resources and study guides, member-only communications, an on-demand library of study content, and so much more. Are you ready to see what the Lord will do? Let's expect to change the world together. Go to davidjeremiah.ca slash BibleStrong to become a BibleStrong partner today. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash BibleStrong. Abraham Lincoln considered by many to be the greatest American president. 
apparently did not think very highly of his own qualifications. Seriously, he said, I do not think I am fit for the presidency. That sounds like a humble thing to say, but the Apostle Paul said something that makes me think otherwise. He said none of us should think of ourselves more highly than we should, and I assume not lower than we should either. In fact, we should spend less time thinking about ourselves one way or another, and more time thinking about who God has made us and called us to be. This is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's perspective on humility on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.